All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everybody. It's Manoush from Note to Self. I know some of you like to listen to these episodes in the car with your kids. So I just want to let you know there are a couple naughty words in this episode. So save it for later if you don't want to listen right now. I've been ghosted twice by the same girl. That's happened to me before when you, like, text someone and they just, like, don't respond and you're like, cool. I have ghosted other people that I've gone on dates with online or whatever. We had started dating and I kind of disappeared on her, so I ghosted her at first. It's just very exhausting. Like, online dating is very exhausting. And, like, I'm obviously not opposed to meeting someone in real life. It's just, like, for me personally... I don't know where the fuck I would meet anyone in real life. Note to self, it's easier than ever to meet someone online. But turning it into a real-life relationship, that is another story. The unspoken rules these days about what is acceptable behavior when it comes to romance are completely confusing. And they are changing constantly. Plus, as you heard, they can hurt. I'm Manoush Samarodi. And I'm here to help you focus on the things that really matter to you in this crazy, accelerating world. And I am also so glad that I met my husband before words like ghosting, simmering, and icing were part of the dating vernacular. If you don't know what those words mean, it's okay. Sit tight. We're going to explain. Because even if you aren't dating right now, they also apply to how we interact with friends and colleagues, too. This is part one of two episodes where we break down what the heck is happening to our relationships, all kinds of relationships, with renowned psychotherapist Esther Perel. Esther is the person to talk to about how love, platonic and romantic, is getting disrupted. Not only is she good at explaining what's going on in a broader anthropological sense, but she also has practical ways that we can form healthier relationships and then keep them that way. So just so you know, Esther and I met last year at a conference and we have become friends and occasional jogging buddies. She is magnetic and funny and so insightful. I have to turn like that. Uh, yeah, like you this? don't have, if you don't want to look at me because you want to, you know, just... I know I love to look at you. Okay, so it's I up to you. this a tiny bit? Yeah, totally. Voila. Esther, do you mind saying your name and the title of your new book? And just for the few people out there who may not have heard of you, mm-hmm. what you do. Right. So my name is Esther Perel. I'm a couples and family therapist. I'm also the author of Mating in Captivity and the upcoming The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. And I'm the host and executive co-executive producer of the new Audible series, Where Should We Begin? So you host a podcast, you write books, you still see patients. You are also a consultant on the show, The Affair, right? You are one seriously busy lady, so we're glad you're here. It's a pleasure. But I want to talk specifically about 
how technology has changed our relationships, because you have a lot of really interesting thoughts on that, too. And you use this term, stable ambiguity, to define what is happening to us when we find love online. What does that mean? So the concept of stable ambiguity I actually borrowed from a colleague of mine and a friend of mine, Terry Real. And when he uses it, he speaks primarily about couples where people are not with and not without. They can't stay with the person. They can't be without person. They're too immature to actually make the full commitment. And they are too afraid of being alone to actually engage in separation. But when I applied it to online behavior, to relationships and, and its influence and intersections with technology, it occurred to me that something very similar was going on, that it's a way to actually cultivate the comforts and the consistency mm. of being in a relationship without having to engage in the full commitment and the loss of freedom that may come with the relationship. So it's stable. But it is ambiguous, as in you actually don't really know where you go, what it means, where it is evolving to. It remains undefined, but just enough so that you don't have to worry about being alone and that you don't have to worry about not being free again either. It's this both-end position, and more and more of that is happening primarily through two particular behaviors that have gotten a vocabulary. They have a name, actually, for them to explain this, right? So one version of it is simmering. 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 Simmering is basically, I'm really busy. I can't see you in the next four weeks, but I'd love for us to meet again afterwards. Let's stay in touch. Okay. Just stay in the ring. Don't really go anywhere. Don't leave, but don't come too close. Let's not make any firm date, any firm commitment, any firm engagement, but just hover there. You simmer. Like in a pot, you know, slow cooking. Options. A petit feu, they say in French. Uh. A little fire, you know. <laughs> yeah. A feu doux. Uh, it's like when something needs a long time to cook and you just let it sit in the pot, yeah. you know, hours and days on end. And it's there if you're hungry. You could just have one spoonful. You don't have to have a whole bowl. Correct. Correct. You can just do a little tasting, put the lid back and just let it simmer. And then the icing is a different version of the same thing. It's basically, you know, right now I'm going into a big project for the next three months. I have to be able to be really busy. I can't focus on my relationships, but I really like you. So don't disappear on me. Like... Be there far away in the background. And when the ice melts, <laughs> I might come when back. the season changes, <laughs> I may come back. So I feel like I'm being simmered. So I'm talking to this guy and we've met up a couple times. So last, actually last night I got really drunk, <laughs> which is embarrassing. We were texting and I basically was like, speaking of dicks, when am I going to get to see yours again? <laughs> And he was like, soon, I'm just really busy. And he was like, I want to see you again. So like, he tells me that he wants to see me again, but he doesn't see me. You don't have to agonize over it if someone's just like, thanks, but no. I can like leave this behind me. We can move on. And I don't have to sit here and think for like weeks, like, what did I do? Like, not even what did I do, but like, is he still interested? What it leaves you with is, what am I? What do I mean here? 
What does that mean to be on hold like this? We all know that being on hold has an element of anticipation and a little bit of excitement maybe that comes with that anticipation. But the longer it lasts, the more the excitement turns into anxiety. Mm -hmm. Am I ever going to be on this plane? Am I ever going to actually leave? Am I ever going to really get there? Are we ever going to see each other again? So I text you Mm -hmm. and then you say, oh, so nice to hear from you. Mm. You know, love to see you. Silence. But you don't say, I'd love to see you Tuesday That's correct. at 7 p.m. That's correct. <laughs> no specifics That's involved. Correct. No specifics. Stable ambiguity. It's stable and it's just ambiguous enough that you end up in the end really becoming very destabilized, actually. So paradoxically, on the receiving end, it leaves people very much like, you know, I'm seeing this person. It's a very strong in the dating pattern, right? I'm seeing this person, but I don't really know when I'm going to see him again or her again, but I liked her. It's a very androgynous behavior. I can't pin this on anyone, (laughs) you know. But she said that she was very busy and that she has this project that's coming on, but I really like her. And I like busy people. I like very busy people because it means that they have a life. Right. (laughs) The other word, we've talked about simmering, we've talked about icing, ghosting is also a thing. That one I think I know, which is that where you've been texting with someone or you've been emailing with someone and then they just stop responding, right? So, you know, I did a blog post, it was about the loss of relational accountability. And it probably has been the most watched and viral blog post I did. And I had a chart that a friend of mine, Adam, made, you know, where he literally talked about power parting, icing, simmering. What does it look like? It's power parting. Pheno- yes. I like that one. He gathered an entire cultural moment on this chart like that. Ghosting, on one level, you would say people have re- been rejected forever. This is not new. We have known you know, romantic rejection and romantic disappointments forever. But there is something in the jarring switch between 250 texts in a few hours, in a day, and then nothing. Nothing. Five minutes before, I found you everywhere. I didn't know where you were, but you were there in my phone, inside, in my pocket. And now, nothing. And I write to you, and nothing. That's the ghosting. I've been ghosted twice by the same girl. We had started dating, and I kind of disappeared on her. So I ghosted her at first. Then we ended up reconnecting at a later time, and she just ghosted me. Then... A while later, you know, we somehow managed to start talking again, you know, the last time. Get super into her, like, very into her. I was, this was the time I was actually committed. And she, bam, disappears on me again. I was, like, really disappointed and hurt that last time. But, you know, what are you going to do? I have hundreds of testimonies of people who are writing to me. I was ghosted. She just disappeared. She just vanished on me. You know, we were meant to have a life together. He said, I'm coming over in an hour. He never came and I never got a response to the text again. It's not just I am ghosted. I had a life. I thought tomorrow morning we're starting this. There were expectations that were set. There's an entire life story that is behind it and zap like that and it leaves you with a sense of 
emptiness and irrelevance and I don't exist. And certainly on the brain capacity level, the difference between the engagement of the ping, 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 you know, that keeps you constantly jerked up and then the silence. So I think ghosting is an intensification with technology of what we have known. The experience of being abandoned, rejected, ignored is not new, but the intensity with which it happens through the online, through the multiple texts, through the emails, the whole thing, that is unprecedented. Okay. Now that we understand better how icing, simmering, and ghosting are affecting our relationships day to day, let's get to the big picture, the philosophical stuff. Love, it is changing. Stick with us. We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and we're talking to psychotherapist Esther Perel. She's author of the new book, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. She's also the host of the podcast, Where Shall We Begin? You may never have heard anything like it. You get to hear real-life couples therapy that she gives to some extremely brave people. So Esther's whole thing is that she helps people develop relationship skills, right? But I was wondering, what is that like for people who are getting into a significant relationship for the very first time. Are their expectations different from what they might have been 10 or 20 years ago? Is the concept of fidelity and a long-term relationship even the goal for millennials or some Gen Xers? Now, what we've been talking about, though, is presuming that what everybody wants is indeed a long-term intimate relationship. Don't you think things are changing culturally? What with the way that we meet people online and a lot of relationships are not in physical location. I hear of so many people who have relationships, you know, across the world. Maybe people don't necessarily want a long-term relationship anymore. So I don't know that that has changed nearly as much as we think it has. Mm. The fact that I'm not in the same place doesn't mean I don't want it to be long-term. It means that I want a long-term relationship that doesn't step on my individual freedom and fulfillment. As if a relationship implies the robbing of one's autonomy and the robbing of one's freedom. When in my world view, the relationship was never just that. In my time, boomer 70s period, When you thought relationship, you didn't think loss of freedom, loss of autonomy. You thought expansion of who I am. Hmm. I'm going to be more of me by virtue of having someone with me Hmm. and not I'm going to lose me. But we also didn't have the notion that you first have to be whole and then you can be in a relationship. The thinking was that you become whole from your relationships. It's your relationships. It's your entire relational life that makes you feel whole, not some individual project that you have to perfect first. And then when it is completely ready, you present it to the world. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're describing my generation. So I realized I met my now husband 15 years ago in real life, not online, before online dating was a regular thing. and But Gen Xers, I think a lot of us were like, I'm not ready to commit to a relationship because I haven't become who I'm going to be. I'm not a real grown-up yet. I haven't 
I don't know, sown my wild oats, right. had my life experiences. And once I do that, then I'll be ready to have a real relationship. Right. Which points to one of the biggest shifts that has occurred around relationships and committed relationships, which is the switch from the cornerstone model to the capstone model. What's that? So the cornerstone model is, you know, in the 60s, 80% yeah. of people in their 20s were in a relationship, if not married. Today, it's 20. Wow. Okay, at 28, 29. So the cornerstone model is I meet you in my early 20s and with you, I'm going to develop myself. With you, I'm going to go to school, develop my identity, carve out my professional life, get my first apartment, turn the garage into a bedroom. You know, that grow up whole together thing, grow almost. up together. That was cornerstone. And the cornerstone model of relationship basically understood that shit happens, yeah. that you're going to have all kinds of crises that we go through, that this is part of building a relationship. The capstone model is you meet me in my late 20s, middle 30s, and I've already worked on my identity. Mm. I have worked for a decade or more to develop who I am, to develop my professional life, my social life. And your choice of me is a recognition of how well I have developed this person. Mm. And therefore, when you choose me, you choose me at my most authentic but also rejecting me at my most authentic with nothing in between. The capstone model, I have sown my proverbial odes, and it is an act of recognition. And so now my choice of being with you is not about developing together. It's about preserving that which I developed on my own. Which honestly sounds like a safer proposition because then if for some reason things don't work out, I will be okay going back. I know how to be on my own. I know how to be a grown-up. So if things don't work out between us, we're not so in each other's lives that we could separate and it wouldn't be a disaster. So that is one way of looking at it. But the research looks also at something else, which is that because... When we met, it was such an enshrinement of this recognition of who I am and vice versa. We actually are much less prepared for working things through. Oh. We actually have less of a basis for managing the crisis because until then, what we did every time something didn't work is we moved on to the next. We actually have not really practiced repair. We haven't practiced reinventing on location. Mm. You would think that because people have waited longer, they may be more prepared for a relationship that ends, but they are not more prepared for working through the kinks while inside a relationship. Waiting longer does not prepare you for the ups and downs from within. Mm. And when we say long-term, long-term today when you live twice as long has a very different meaning. Yeah. So do we mean till death was apart? No, not at all. But do people who fall in love say to someone, I love you for now? Mm, no. No. <laughs> that wouldn't go over very well. I, what I have seen, though, um, this idea of people saying like, yeah, well, we're splitting up. I mean, it's not like we're not fine with each other. It's just like, I don't know. I feel like we could be happier. Yes. There's no big fight. There's no big problem. People just splitting up because they think, well, you know, that was good for now, but let's see what else there is. Right. I think in order to understand this script, yeah, it was okay. It was really nice. I don't know. Maybe, there, you know, I'm not so sure. You know, I wasn't unhappy, but I don't know if I could be happier. Right. Two things go with that. 
I think the first one is, yes, it's true that suddenly once we were able to, let's go back to now the divorce model, because that's where it started, right? We used to divorce if you were really unhappy. Today we divorce because we think we could be happier. Hmm. But for that, we have to understand what has happened to happiness. You know, Instagram. Most of the history, <laughs> yes, yes. Most of history, happiness belonged to the afterlife. Huh. You suffered on earth, certainly if you were a good Christian. And then if you were rewarded, you could go into paradise. And in the afterlife, you would find bliss and happiness. For God's sakes, when did people seek bliss on earth? <laughs> you know, then we brought happiness down from the heavens and it became a possibility. And then after it was a possibility, it became a mandate. Mm-hmm. So now I have to be happy. But how do I know? How do I know that I'm happy enough? How do I know I couldn't be happier? And so it becomes this elusive pursuit that actually, paradoxically, often leaves people quite miserable mm. and quite unhappy that they're not happy. I mean, is that right? solely American? Like no, it's Declaration Western. of Independence sort of thing? It's Western, but it comes with individualism and consumerism. It comes with a capitalistic system where the individual is at the center and it comes with choice, right? That is the consumer mentality. And so you bring that consumer mentality to your relationships. And, you know, we know that if you have two or three options, it's fantastic and it's much better than one or none. But we also know that if you have a hundred options or a proliferation of options through your apps, then you become caught in the paradox of choice. Paralyzed. Right? Because you relish the freedom of so much choice, but you are gripped by the tyranny of the self-doubt and the uncertainty that comes with it. How do I know? How do I know you are the one? How do I know you are the real one? How do I know there's not a better one? Mm -hmm. And with that, I have that script that says, yeah, it was nice. I'm not so sure. I liked it, but I I wasn't feeling this and I wasn't feeling that. And you bring that, you know, let me try a different dish mentality, a consumer mentality to your relationships. We disrupt the traditional institutions we create innovation. We believe in change. Uh, it is highly individualistic. And we create our own scripts rather than borrow from the long-standing cultural discourses and value systems that have been established. Okay, I'm not sure if I'm totally optimistic about the freedom that we all apparently have to redefine our relationships but I definitely am slightly terrified for anyone out there who's negotiating it right now. I'm thinking of you. Love and romance are tied up with ambiguity and uncertainty thanks to texting, tindering, and Instagramming. But what about our other relationships with family members, friends, and coworkers? And when did it become socially acceptable to just not respond to an invitation to a party or to get super busy and just disappear on people? We're going to continue this conversation with Esther Perel next week, so don't leave me hanging. Subscribe to the podcast so you get part two of Note to Self's therapy session. Okay, and now a very special message to those of you who came out to see me on the Bored and Brilliant book tour. Entire families, best friends, coworkers, teachers— Your energy, your enthusiasm, your willingness to be skeptical and ask great questions and to share such deeply personal stories moved me in ways that, yes, even I have trouble expressing. 
thank you so much for giving me your attention. For the hugs, and yes, the selfies, and to the lovely person who gifted me the homemade soap, I smell really good. Thank you. So our message is getting out there. More people are talking about how to manage their minds and their phones and why it is so important that we bring back deeper thinking, insist that our devices act as tools that improve our lives rather than taskmasters who make money off distracting us. I think this country, as I said on the tour, needs some serious creative thinking to solve some big problems. Economic inequality, racial divides, environmental time bombs. And you guys get it. You are kind and thoughtful and insightful, and I think at the forefront of figuring out how we make ourselves and our communities just plain better. Okay, so that's the end of my gooey sentimental rant. Um, Thank you for buying the book, for rating it. I really appreciate it. Uh, If you haven't done it yet, yes, this is the part where I ask you to do so. And um, tell somebody you care about, about the book or the message of the book, or better yet, yes, buy it for them. We can keep up this momentum, so thank you. The fabulous Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Cunane, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Matt Boynton and Adriana Tapia for their help this week, too. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and I will leave you now with some messages from my husband, which really, I think, encapsulate what a long-term relationship and love can be. Hey, call me when you get this. Bye. Hey, Kai has some Legos in the back. Make sure you get them before you come back or before you return the car. Thank you. Hey, call me. I wanted to make sure everything's okay and that your mom got there. Bye.